I remember as a young child wondering what it would be like to watch him grow old. <laughs> now that I am watching him grow older, thinking in a couple of years he'll be 80 years old, uh, remembering him coming to my games and going out and playing golf together and doing all the things we did, now to see him slowing down and um, as the wrinkles are forming on their faces, both mom and dad. It's an interesting feeling for me to be coming toward middle age and watching my father and mother get toward old age. But then I think of Abram. Abraham at this point, 99 years old. And Abraham illustrates the truth of a commercial that was out a few years ago was featuring older folks and it says, you're not getting older, you're getting better. Abraham gets better with age. He mellows with age. He becomes obedient with age. The hard knocks of life are getting to him. And finally, about 99 years old, he starts really living. You figure by about 100 years old, you should have some of the lessons of life learned. You've run up against enough hard walls, been beat up a few times by your own unbelief. Now it's time to really settle down and do business with God. 99 years of age. The previous chapter marked perhaps the very lowest point in Abraham's entire life. He had several lapses of faith up to this point. Times where he flatly disobeyed God because he did not believe God. Now, Abraham had wonderful times of belief where he trusted God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But in chapter 16, he makes a horrible mistake. He listens to ungodly counsel, the well-meaning counsel. It came from his wife. That's not to say that ungodly counsel always does. In fact, I have found that my wife gives me good counsel and has great insight into so many areas, so many spiritual areas. She's so in tune. And I will often consult her. But it is always good and necessary whenever you consult anyone, even your pastor or Christian counselor, that you match it up with the Word of God to see if these things be so. To see if it is in the Word and God is speaking to you the same thing. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. His wife, Sarai, was a little bit perturbed that she hadn't had the promise of a child that God told Abram and Sarah they'd have years before. They says, look, honey, I'm tired of waiting, and perhaps God wants to fulfill the promise, not through me, since I'm an older woman and I can't have kids. So take my handmaiden, the servant, Hagar, that you got down in Egypt when you disobeyed God last time, <laughs> and have children through her as a surrogate mother. Ishmael was born. Made Sarah a little bit jealous. Hagar was cast out from her presence. God found her in the wilderness. Promised wonderful things to Hagar about Ishmael. And now we get to, to chapter 17. It says, When Abram, Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I'm Almighty God. Walk before me 
and be blameless. It was as if God was saying, okay, Abram, now that you're 99 years old, quit the disobedient stuff. Get down to business with me. Walk before me. Be blameless. Quit pulling off uh, these areas of disobedience. It's time to really get down to business and walk right before me. There's some interesting words in verse 1. Three different names are used of God. And it probably bears a little bit of picking apart to understand them. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, that is Yahweh or Jehovah, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. That's another name for him. Or the Almighty, El Shaddai. God, Elohim, three different titles. Now the first one, Jehovah or Yahweh, was often used in the Old Testament when um, later on when uh, Moses comes before the Lord and he says, okay, look, they're going to ask me what your name is. What shall I say your name is? God said, I am that I am. But the name Jehovah or Yahweh was God's covenant name that he gave to his people in relating to Israel. The reason I say it is either Yahweh or Jehovah is that we don't know how it's pronounced. If you looked at it in Hebrew, you would have four consonants transliterated into English, Y-H-V-H, Yahweh or Yahweh or Yehovah or Jehovah. We don't know how it's pronounced. Why? Because the Jewish people esteemed the name of God as so sacred that they never even said his name. They thought that human lips were too unworthy to speak God's name because they held God in such reverence. Now we enjoy the benefit of a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have intimacy with him. And we should enjoy the intimacy. However, I get a little bit annoyed when I see people take certain liberties with God as if he's the man upstairs, pat on the back, old pal, my buddy Jesus, and often neglecting the respect and the reverential awe for God. The beginning of wisdom, the scripture says, is the fear of the Lord. It's also the beginning of knowledge, which means not I'm afraid of God like the three in the Wizard of Oz who shook before Oz, but a reverential awe for the Lord. He's intimate. He's my Lord. And at the same time, he is God over all. And so it was held in respect. Then God introduces himself, verse 1 of chapter 17. He says, I am Almighty God, El Shaddai. El Shaddai is an interesting name. It means the Mighty One, but in its original term, it refers to the bosom of a nursing mother. Which speaks not only of strength and protection, as a mother would protect her young, but of warmth and compassion and intimacy. It is a term that you will be interested to know is used more in the book of Job than any other book in Scripture. El Shaddai, the Almighty God, the bosom of a nursing mother. And I think that's significant because I have found that suffering people like Job need that aspect of God's character revealed to them more than any other group of people. God is tender and compassionate. 
Psalm 91 uses the term probably in its best and most unfolding way. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will dwell under the shadow of El Shaddai, the Almighty. God will be his strength and his refuge. What's interesting is that in verse 16 of chapter 16, it says Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. In other words, it was 13 years before God spoke to this character again. What a waste. To disobey God, listen to ungodly counsel, have a child, and God had nothing more to say to Abram until 13 years later when he finally said, now listen, I'm almighty God. I'll get my work done my way, in other words. I am capable. Now you walk before me and be blameless. You know, there's an important scripture that even as Christians we tend to forget. It says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. You know, we look at this scripture and we think, well, God spoke to him again, but Abram was reaping what he had sown. Out of fellowship with God, a time of a wilderness experience. God had nothing more to say to him. You know, there's nothing worse than being out of step and out of fellowship with the will of God, the message of God, the direction of God for your life. Nothing is worth Forfeiting the peace and the fellowship with God. Now he says, And I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Now, Abram probably is a little bit shame-faced at this point. He falls down on his face, no doubt in remorse and repentance, and God speaks to him and reassures the covenant that God makes with Abram. The Abrahamic covenant, an unconditional covenant where God will give to his descendants a little piece of real estate called Israel. And God will bring the Messiah through his genealogy. It's an unconditional covenant. And he brings it out in chapter 17 probably uh, in greater detail than any other chapter. No longer, verse 5, will your name be called Abram, but your name will be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. <laughs> Abram meant exalted father. Abraham meant father of a multitude. <laughs> Poor guy. All he had at this point was the promise, no fulfillment. Remember a couple chapters later, God gives him this promise, and he goes, no, wait a minute, God. You gave me a promise, but I want to see it. All I have is my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. I want, I want you to produce something. Where's my son? Now God comes to him again and says, Now get right and stay right. You're 99 years of age. You're going to have a son. And I'm going to call you father of a multitude. Imagine what a caravan coming from Assyria, going down to Egypt, thought when they first met Abram. And Abram is out there in the fields with his tent and his servants, very wealthy. And the caravan comes and Abram says, Hey, how you guys doing? Come on in. Stop for some water. Water your camels. He said, Hey, we'd love to. By the way, what's your name? He says, 
My name is uh, Exalted Father. Ooh, really? Well, how many kids do you have? Well, uh, I don't have any, but one's on the way. Oh, really? Your wife's pregnant? Well, not yet, but um, she will be. Oh, I see. You're trying. Yeah. Well, how old is your wife? Oh, in her 90s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this guy's been out in the sun too long, you know. And then let's say the same caravan went down to Egypt and came back a few years later. And there he is again, waves his arm and says, Abram, how you doing? Well, it was Abram, but my name's been changed now. Oh, yeah, you kind of saw the light. That was a ridiculous name. Yeah, yeah, exalted father really wasn't accurate. Well, what's your new name? Father of a multitude. Well, do you have a new wife? You had a lot of kids? No, same wife. She's getting up there, but God promised that we'd have a son. He was the laughing stock of probably everyone around. And, but yet he had the promises of God. The scripture says he wavered not. He staggered not at the promise of God, but counted he who promised faithful. <laughs> Walking by faith, not by sight. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, verse 6, and I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me or be, uh, between me and you and your descendants after you and their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will also give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. All right, Abram, here's the conditions of the covenant. This is what they are. You're going to have a son. It's not going to be Ishmael, though I'll bless him. You're going to have another kid. Out of you will come kings, many nations. I'll bless you. And I'll establish my covenant with you and your posterity. And part of that is that you get a land, the land of Israel. The land of Israel will be given to you, and to your son, who was Isaac, and to his generations, who is Jacob, and the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that's very important. Because you will hear around, even some Christians speaking, that God has forfeited his promises to Israel. They will say things like, well, Israel sinned, you see. And because Israel sinned, God has now skipped over that nation. And all of the promises that God made to Israel are pushed aside for that nation and are given to the church. If that's so, you and I are in hot water. You and I are in hot water. Because I hear that God, read here that God says, I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. To me, that sounds pretty eternal. If it's not, we're in trouble because God made an everlasting covenant with me. He said that if I believe in Jesus, I'd have everlasting life. If God says, well, I was just kidding. Now that Israel sinned, I'll skip them over and I'll negate all the promises to them then I'm really in trouble because God said he made an everlasting covenant with me. Listen, there are covenants in the Bible, some that are conditional, some that are unconditional. This is an unconditional covenant. And when God grants you eternal life, it's an unconditional covenant. You have eternal life. David said, Lord, if you would mark iniquities, who would stand? Would you? I wouldn't. 
Now, there's a big controversy I'm getting into, and I'm not going to bring it to closure. It will be a controversy that we're going to develop over the next several weeks, as long as the Lord gives us time and the Word together. And that is that little piece of real estate over in the Middle East called Israel, known by the Arabs as Palestine, has been fought over for a long time. In fact, the Israeli and Arab conflict is nothing new. It's been going on ever since these pages that we are reading tonight. There's been a struggle and a controversy. And of course, the Israelis say, this is our land. The Arabs say, well, we had it before you. Of course, if their argument is correct, then it belongs to the British. And it belongs to the Turks. And it belongs to the Crusaders. And you could go way, way back. And then you have to ask the question, whose land really is it? Of course, the answer is settled in the Bible. God said, it is my land forever. It belongs to God. Whoever occupies it is simply a tenant and must occupy it under God's directives. But that's another issue that we'll get into. But just to whet your appetite for what's coming up ahead with the conflicts, uh, it's an everlasting covenant. And Canaan is an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you through their generations. And this is the covenant which you shall keep, okay? I'm going to do this, Abram. This is what I want you to do. This is your part of it. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house, or bought with money from any stranger who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken the covenant. Abraham, that's his new name, it's the first one in the scripture to be circumcised. It's not Moses. It's not the children of Israel after the giving of the law. It's Abraham. Circumcision was a sign of the relationship with God. It was not the source. Faith in God was the source. Now I'm leading up to something. Very important. They were not saved by circumcision. Abraham was saved by faith and he believed in God. And God accounted it to him for righteousness. It was his faith in God that established the covenant. The circumcision was the sign. Hey, we got a covenant going. It was an outward sign of an inward change by faith. Now keep your finger here and turn over to Romans chapter 4. This is something we started to get into last time. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something of which to boast, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, 
The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes, a legal term here, righteousness apart from works. For he said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Now, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Here's the answer. Abraham was justified by faith, not by circumcision. Circumcision was given later as an outward sign of the inward chains of the faith that he had in his Lord. Now, circumcision becomes the badge of this covenant all the way throughout Israel's history. Moses, the children of Israel, were all commanded to keep the badge of circumcision. So much so that the Jews were known as the circumcised, the Gentiles as the uncircumcised. But they were never saved by it. Now that you uh, turn there, uh, turn over to Romans again, chapter 2. Should have had you just keep there, stay there. He's speaking to Jewish people mostly here. Verse 25, chapter 2. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Later on, God rebukes the children of Israel. All of them were circumcised, the males, that is. They kept the outward sign, but God said, circumcise your hearts. Because though they kept the outward requirements of the law, their hearts were not separated to God, which is what circumcision was evidence of. Their relationship with God was haywire. They thought, well, you know, I'm a good Jewish person. I've kept circumcision. But God over and over again said, but circumcise not the foreskin of your flesh, but circumcise your hearts. Circumcision is very much like baptism. It is very sad when churches will tell you you are saved when you are baptized. No, you're not. Because if you are saved by baptism, that means you're saved by works. The work of going and dipping yourself in the water and saying, now I'm saved. You are saved by faith 
like Abraham, who was saved before he was circumcised, when he believed in God and it was imputed or accounted to him for righteousness. So that your baptism, folks, is an outward designation of something that's happened in your hearts. No one is ever saved through baptism. They're saved through faith, by an act of God's grace. Now, does that mean that a Christian can say, great, I don't ever need to be baptized? No, it doesn't. In fact, whenever I hear somebody who says, hey, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to get baptized, I really wonder about that person's commitment and salvation. As I read the New Testament, baptism almost always immediately followed an act of faith. Not because they were saved by it, but because salvation produces obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he says that we ought to believe and be baptized. And we ought to baptize all men in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're not saved by it. But salvation produces obedience and you'll want to do it. Hey, what does God want me to do? Well, he wants you to be baptized. Well, why? That's kind of foolish. Because it's an outward sign of an inward change. You go in the water, it speaks of death and burial. You come out, it speaks of resurrection, walking in newness of life. It's a sign of a covenant. It's a badge of something that has happened inside your hearts. By the way, it seems that in the early church, baptism, which stems from Judaism, by the way. I don't know if you know that, but baptism was something that the Jews practiced in temple worship. But when it came to the Gentiles, in Acts chapter 15, let me back up. Paul the Apostle, stalwart Jew, believed at one time that if you wanted to be saved, you had to be a Jew. And indeed, that was true before Christ came. If you wanted to be saved, uh, the way that God provided was through animal sacrifice in Judaism. Whether you were born in the covenant of Israel or out. Jesus even said, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. He was right. Paul the Apostle, however, after he became a Christian, went among the Gentiles and found that many of them believed by faith and were even filled and baptized by the Holy Spirit. So he comes back to Jerusalem and he tells all that God had done. And the people in Jerusalem, the church leaders, were angry that Gentiles were considered Christians without keeping the law of Moses and being circumcised. And they stood up and said, now you know what? No one can be saved unless he keeps the Mosaic law of the Jews and is circumcised. Everybody knows that. And so they said, Paul, you're going to need to go back to all of the places you preached and lay this trip on them. They believed by faith, but you led them astray. You're going to have to tell them, Hey, sorry you guys, uh, but the church in Jerusalem told me to tell you that if you really want to be right with God, you have to be circumcised. I know that's going to be tough for some of you fellas, but you've got to do it. Otherwise, you're not saved. And you have to keep the law of Moses or you'll never go to heaven. And I love it. Peter stands up in the assembly and says, Why are you trying to put a yoke of bondage upon these new converts that neither our fathers nor we were ever able to keep. Isn't that interesting? Hey, we've never kept the law, all of it. We've transgressed. We relate to God through Jesus Christ by faith. It's His work on the cross that saves us. It's not circumcision, nor is it baptism. So, when the council at Jerusalem finally settles this, James, the leader of the early church, 
writes a little letter to all those Gentiles up in Antioch and around the Gentile world. And he says, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. In other words, we agree with the Holy Spirit. That you should abstain from sexual immorality, fornication, things sacrificed to idols, and from taking blood, that is, you know, uh, eating the meat that is not yet cooked and drinking the blood, which was common among the heathens. He knew that that would stumble the Jews. He says, you keep from those things, and you have faith in God, and you're fine, man. He didn't say, and be baptized. Though, often they were baptized after they made a commitment to Christ. But even Paul the Apostle said, hey, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. All right, I think we've hammered that into the ground. Let's go on to verse 12. No, we've already covered that. Verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, I'm sure that she was elated when he came home with the new name. Because Sarai means head or contentious. How would you like to live with that name? I'd like you to meet my wife. This is contentious. Boy, is she. He said, honey, God spoke to me today and said you were a princess. That's what Sarah means. Honey, I'm going to call you princess. Oh, what a, what a wonderful thing to come home to. If you husbands would come home and when you see your wife say, hello, princess. Uh, I'm sure that she felt edified. And she said, praise God. Didn't say that she said that, but I'm imagining that she would. And God says, I will bless her, and I will also give you a son by her, and I will bless her. Twice God says, I will bless her. Hey, women, don't ever get the idea that God is a male chauvinist. Yes, the Bible was written in a patriarchal society where men, where men were seen as the heads. And still, men are called the head of the home. doesn't mean they're right. In fact, they're responsible for all the blunders they make, not you, before God. But God is interested in this woman. Twice he says, I'm going to bless her. She shall be the mother of nations, and kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Now he's 99 at the time. You think, by the time she has this kid, I'm going to be a, a century old man. And shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? Come on. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. <laughs> now when Abraham laughed, it was a laughter of sheer joy wasn't a disbelief because we read before that Abraham believed God when he says, you're going to have a son. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Yeah, he lapsed in faith when Sarah said, hey, listen, I think that what God meant is it's not going to be through me, but through Hagar. But now the covenant is reaffirmed. He laughs. He goes, this is great. Who would have ever thought that old folks like us would have a kid? And so he laughs, and it's really a laughter of joy. Uh, now, years before, I'm sure he thought it would be impossible, but now it's a laughter of joy. And I refer you to, again, Romans 4. hope you kept your finger there. Turn over to Romans chapter 4. 
It says in verse 18, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Love it. Now God spoke to him. God spoke to him before and he believed God. And now he laughs. He goes, this is great. Here's that promise again. He keeps promising me the same old thing. And I'm an old coot. I'm almost 100 years old. This is insane. Wait till that caravan comes back. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, whatever opinion you have of little old Ishmael, whether you concede that he was the child of the flesh and not of the promise, and he was in that sense. God did not promise Ishmael the land of Israel, nor his covenant promise of the Messiah, but Ishmael was still Abram's son. And he was still loved by Abraham. They were attached. And he loved Ishmael. Hagar came back with little Ishmael and they kind of probably took a liking to each other. And hey, that's his son after all. And after becoming attached, he just said, oh, but there's Ishmael. I love him. Oh, that Ishmael might be the one. This is God's response. God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You will call his name Laughter. That's what Isaac means. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful he will, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes. And I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you, at this set time next year. Now, if you are familiar with the Middle Eastern culture, and in particular Islam, if a Muslim was reading this scripture to you, his Bible would read a little bit differently. God promised the land to Abram, Ishmael, and his 12 sons, rather than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and his twelve. And their scripture even says that God took Ishmael to Mount Moriah in chapter 22 and almost sacrificed Ishmael rather than Isaac upon Mount Moriah. And so if you go to Jerusalem today and you see the golden dome of the rock, they will not refer you to Abram or Abraham sacrificing Isaac there, but Ishmael. And so there's some insertions there. Well, see, God said, I'll make a covenant with him, but my covenant that he's speaking about will be established with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at the set time next year. Then, verse 22, he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all who were born in his house, all who were brought, bought with money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin at the very same day as God said to him, 
Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. I was with my son in the hospital when he was circumcised. Boy, did he scream. Now, Abraham was, Abraham was 99 years old. Tell you what, this man believed in God. Or he wouldn't have pulled this off. His laughter was a laughter of belief. And to form that covenant, he was obedient. It showed that this guy was, he meant serious business with God. Had all of his, I think that would be tough for Abraham to explain that to his household. Hey, God spoke to me. Yeah, right, again, huh? Hey, I know, you're going to have a kid. You've been telling us that now for years. Well, uh, yeah, that's true. In fact, I have a new name, and Sarai has a new name. She's princess, but God has a message for all of you. And that is all of you males are to be circumcised. <laughs> what exactly does that mean, Abraham? <laughs> well, you'll find out. <laughs> Him being obedient to God, at this point, taking the knife to the foreskin of the male organ of the flesh of a male was a prelude to a greater sacrifice of obedience that he'll make some years later when God says, take your son, your only son whom you love, get a knife and plunge it into him as a sacrifice. He was learning to walk by faith and not by sight. It's because he encountered God in a new revelation. He's not just Yahweh, he's Almighty God. He's discovering the power of God through the promises of God. There's more to a relationship with God than the initial salvation experience. The maturity, the real thrill of the Christian life comes when you meet God as El Shaddai, the Almighty One. And you experience the power, the ongoing power of a changed life through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit moving through your life. I'm convinced, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God is a ministry for every one of you. You don't need to be professionally in the ministry. Folks, this is the day of layman's lib. God wants to raise up his church and empower his church as an army who doesn't see their own inabilities, their own lack of whatever, but they see God's ability. And they march according to his orders. You know, so often... The church turns inward and we want a blessing and think, boy, I got God has to work in this area of my life and God's got to do this. Yeah, it's true. But you know what? Imperfect as you are, God desires to move through you. And I've met many Christians who unfortunately are stilted in ministry and service because they think, well, I'll serve the Lord as soon as I get this area of my life. I'm going through counseling now and once that's really taken care of, and, and, and I mature in that, then I'll, be, I'll go and be used by God. You know what happens? As soon as that one area they feel is under control, another area seems to just creep up. Well, I've got to give attention to this now. You're imperfect. It's all right. God will make you holy, and God does want to use you. Jesus, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, as water was being poured out over the altar by the priests, and everybody in the temple courts was shouting Hosanna and quoting scriptures out of Isaiah. Jesus shouted at the top of his lungs. He 
said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow torrents or rivers of living water. This spake he of the Holy Spirit, which was not yet given. See, when you come to Jesus Christ, you are refreshed, but God wants to make you a vessel to refresh others. Where his life flows from you, torrents of living water, and he uses you as you experience the power of God, El Shaddai, the power of the Holy Spirit. So all the men in the house were circumcised. What a thrill. All the men of his house, born in the house, or bought with money from a stranger, were circumcised with him. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. There's Abram out there by his tent. It's hot. He's just kind of sitting under the flap. There's no air conditioning, no swamp cooler. Uh, nobody putting grapes in his mouth with a big fan with feathers. He's just sitting out there in the heat of the day. It's 2, 3 in the afternoon. and He's just out looking, maybe thinking about the promise. Thinking, All right, where is it? Now we're going to see here an unusual appearance, I believe, of God. A theophany, an appearance of God in human form. It's a hard-to-figure-out chapter, but you're going to see the result of a blessed life is that of intimate fellowship with God. As contrasted to Lot, one who lived a blasted life, not a blessed life, he went through the heartache and the turmoil of living in Sodom and Gomorrah. He lacked joy. His family went awry and was broken up later on. But Abraham lives a blessed life, waiting on God, trusting in his promises, and going to meet the Lord face to face here in this chapter. By the way, what's great about this chapter is that God will speak now to Sarah. Now think, put yourself in Sarah's shoes for a minute. Sarah only got the promise secondhand. Up to this point, God never spoke to her. She had to believe her hubby. Honey, God spoke to me today. Oh, really? What did he say this time? Well, he said that uh, you were wrong in having uh, me go with Hagar and that you're going to have a kid. Oh, really? Me, huh? Yeah. But up to this point, the information has been getting, she received it secondhand. That's tough, man. God didn't speak to her. This time, God speaks to her. Jean Getz wrote a great book supposing what a conversation between Sarah and Abraham would have been like in this regard. It goes like this. Sarah says, well, what do you think? He said this time, Abraham, we made a mistake, Sarah, a bad mistake. I should never have tried to produce a child by Hagar. God told me very clearly that you are supposed to be the mother of my son, of the promised seed. Sarah, me? Now I know you're crazy, Abraham. You know I can't bear children. I never have been able to, and 13 years ago it would have been impossible. Abraham, that's where we made our mistake. It's not impossible with God. He's God Almighty. He can make it possible even right now. Sarah shaking her head. Abraham, you've lost your senses completely. You've even forgotten how old I am. And look at you. Abraham, you're 90 years old, Sarah. I'm 99. I know that. And so does God. In fact, that's been part of his plan all along. Our son's going to be a miracle child. A son born in our old age. Oh, yeah? How do you know that? 
Well, God told me. Sarah said, God told you. God told you. Abraham, I'm fed up with this whole thing. I tried to help God out. And I tried to help you out, remember? I gave you Hagar, my personal slave, into your arms. And what did I get? When she became pregnant, she made fun of me. She laughed at me. And when I drove her out, with your permission, Abraham, God appeared to her and sent her back with that wild kid of yours. You know, Abraham, I bet she made up that whole story. God didn't appear to her. She just wanted back in our household. Why, I'd like to. Abraham speaking with a very comforting but firm fashion. Now, Sarah, Sarah, hold on. Sarah breaks down crying with a pause. I'm sorry, Abraham. I'm so confused. I meant well, but it just didn't turn out right. And I'm terribly bitter. Abraham, tenderly holding Sarah, pausing until the weeping subsides. I know how you feel, honey. It's been a rough 13 years for all of us, but God hasn't forsaken us, Sarah. I just misunderstood him. It's mostly my fault, not yours, that all of this happened. Sarah, I want to believe you, Abraham. I want to believe you that God will really work a miracle. But right now, I just can't. You see, God hadn't spoken to Sarah at this point. She's bitter. She's doubtful. But God will change all that. So God appears. The Lord appeared to him in the terebinth trees of Mamre. Let's listen to what happens. He lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. And he bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Please, let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, all right, go for it. Do as you have said. It's amazing, the hospitality of the ancient Mideast. Abram's out there, door of his tent, very rich, very prosperous, intimate with God. These three characters end up there. And he gets up and he runs to them. He goes, hey, please, do me a favor. Let me wash your feet. Oh, really? I'm doing you a favor? Yeah, let me wash your feet. But see, that was the hospitality which was regarded as the highest grace to an ancient Israelite. And since you've been on a journey, I'd like to refresh you with some water and a meal. They said, all right, fine, go for it. And so he goes to bless them. Now, in verse 2, he says, uh, we read that there are three men that were standing by him. It would seem, by reading the whole text, and we eventually will, that these three people, one of them is the Lord himself and two are angels. There's this interchangeable kind of vocabulary. God appeared and then we see men. And then we see God speaking and then we see a couple of angels going out. Look down at verse 16 with me. Let's just skip ahead. The men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. So the men are going now toward Sodom. Look down at verse 22. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Verse 33. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Now look at chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. As I have wrestled with this text and I put it all together, it would seem plainly that one is a theophany, the appearance of God 
in the form of a human, the pre-incarnate Christ, if you will, Christophany, and two are angelic beings who end up splitting from Abraham speaking to the third, the Lord, and they go off to Sodom and eventually to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, there's a New Testament passage that says that we ought to be careful because some have entertained angels without knowing it. Isn't that an interesting prospect? Have you ever thought that there could have been an angel that has crossed your path? Maybe just to see how you would deal with a stranger? Now, I think if you met an angel, it would be unaware. He's not going to come up and say, just want you to know that I'm an angel. Now, don't look too closely. I've tucked my wings under my coat, but I'm an angel. I think it would be unaware. Though at times angels appeared very much aware, at this point, Abram was not aware of it. Abraham was not aware of it. I've looked back over my life and I've tried to think about times where I may have encountered angels. I can think of a couple, perhaps, strange occurrences that have happened. Where it indeed could have been, but how will I know if they were unaware? If it was an unaware experience, if some have entertained angels without knowing it, how would I know it? So I'll know when I get to heaven. So I've never cognitively met an angel, except for one, as I've said, my wife, and I married her. But besides that, I know of no others. These three men come to the tent door. Abram says, let me entertain you for a while. And what's interesting and I think a lesson for us is just how natural God appeared to Abraham. It wasn't in a flash, wasn't in a vision, wasn't in lightning or an earthquake, just in the form of a natural person. God came in a natural way, though it was a supernatural visit. How often I think God has desired to come to us, but we're looking for the unique Damascus Road kind of an experience. We make a mistake when we begin to look for some outward manifestation to show that God has appeared. Now, we all know there are times when God has made himself known in the past, even to us. Hey, folks, there's been times where I've walked into places or I've come to church here at a worship time and it's just like God just walked in the room. I mean, it's pretty obvious that the presence of God is strong, at least for some, maybe not for all, but th there's that unusual sense of his presence. The mistake we make is in trying to mass produce that every time. We've got to generate that, man. We've got to get the emotion going. Otherwise, God didn't show up. And it's wrong to judge a worship experience by watching some outward manifestation. It can be often very, very natural. As God, Jesus appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. They had no idea that it was the Messiah, the God, the King of the universe, who was walking right next to them. So, verse 6, Abraham hurried or hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. Again, Abraham at this point was very unaware who these heavenly visitors were. Um, if he would have known, I'm sure he, would, you know, he didn't say, uh, Now, Sarah, we've got a couple angels and God outside, so you know, make a real good meal. He had no idea who this was at this point. 
And Abraham ran to the herd and took a tender and a good calf and gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. You know, I find a beautiful blend here of husband and wife sharing domestic duties. It is true that Abraham was the master of his tent, the king of the flap. And so he went in and he said, quick, Sarah, get ready, cook a meal, make these cakes. And the Bible commends Sarah for her obedience in the book of Peter. It says that Sarah called Abraham Lord, just submitting to him. Now, some women take an offense to that, especially in these days of women's liberation. But Abraham also took part. He didn't say, oh, by the way, go get a goat, would you? He himself went out and got part of the meal. I like that. There's a blending of the domestic duties. Husbands, I don't need to tell you, but it blesses your wife, even after you've had a hard day's work hard day at the office, to come home to your wife and maybe prepare a meal or at least say, honey, don't worry about the dishes. Take the night off. I'll take care of the kids. Let me wash up. Now, she may have a heart attack, <laughs> but it'll really bless her. Abraham is out there helping out with the meal. Now, he gave it to a young man and he hastened to prepare it. Remember, he's got hundreds if not thousands of servants. And so he went out to help entertain them and he stood by them at the tree, as the, under the tree as they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Here in the tent. Now he probably looked at them incredulously because we have a hint here as to who these messengers are. There's only three people so far who has known that Sarai's name was changed to Sarah. Abraham, Sarah, and God. Three strangers appear and said, Hey, where's your wife? Sarah. He probably thought, Who are these folks? And he said, <clears throat> Right here in the tent. Just kind of waiting for more. He said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door is behind him. Just a tent flap away. She was there. It's probably because her name was mentioned. You know how it is that in a crowd, it's hard to discern what people are saying when people are talking and there's hundreds of people, but somebody says your name. You hear it. It's like somebody, 50 people over there said my name. Four blocks away, but you can hear it. You're attuned to it. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door, which is behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well-advanced in age. That's an understatement. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? saying, Surely I shall bear a child since I am old. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah's laugh was different because it brought on a, re a reproof, if not a rebuke, from the Lord. Hey, why did she laugh? You see, Abraham laughed and God didn't say, hey, Why did you laugh? Because it was a laugh of belief. It was a laugh of sheer joy. 
Hers is a laugh of unbelief. It brings on a rebuke. Later on, she will laugh again, and it will be a laughter of belief. As we'll see, we won't be able to really crack open the story in its fullness till next week. But God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. Oh, Sarah, you got busted by God. Don't lie to him. Now you'd think when somebody who's a stranger knows your name, out of the blue, confirms a promise your husband said, that you'd be a little more open. But not Sarah. At this point, she's just beyond that. She's, she's bitter and she hears it and she goes, what a joke. Good one. At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. She said, no. Or he said, the Lord said, no, but you did laugh. Let me just put this together for you and, and not look up all these scriptures. In the book of Hebrews, it also says that Sarah knew she was past the age of childbearing, but she believed in the Lord. Later on, she comes to believe the Lord. Genesis chapter 21 records her faith in the promises of God. And then she becomes pregnant and she has a son. Between the first time that God says, Sarah, this is God, you're going to have a son. And she laughs in unbelief. And the second time that God speaks to her and she believes, something happens in between that time. What was it? What caused her to believe? I believe it was the question that God asked, is anything too hard for the Lord, period. You know, there are certain questions that are like bombshells. You leave a person with that bombshell, you walk out of their life, and you let them mull over it and think about it for a little while. And probably Sarah would take long walks at night. She thought, boy, that was a weird, weird set of characters that were at the tent the other day. knew my name and promised these things and a couple of them went to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were strange characters. But he asked me that strange question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Then maybe she thought about it. She looked at the stars. Hmm. I guess not. You see, whatever your difficulty is, anybody experiencing any trial or difficulty? Be honest. Okay. Apart from God, just the equation, just the circumstance of difficulty is enough to overwhelm some of you. I know personally, I have them too. You look at certain things and you think, I've never experienced, this is tough. Granted it is. In the human, it could even be an impossibility. But you factor God into the equation, you've got a whole new equation. Difficulty must always be measured by the one who does the job. You take your difficulty and you factor God in the midst of it, you've got unlimited possibilities. God created the heavens and the earth. He flung the 100 billion galaxies into where they are. He flung the 100 billion stars into the Milky Way galaxy. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Obvious answer, no. Sarah needed to learn that. She probably thought about that. 
until she eventually said, you know what? I need to factor God into my difficulty. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. You got a spouse that's hard to be married to? There's nothing too hard for the Lord. You think, oh Lord, I'm sentenced to this relationship <laughs> with this creep. Oh God, what do I do? Should I split? No. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Oh, I'll choose the easy way out, don't you dare. You factor God into your equation. God can change a person's life. You know, I've met husbands and wives who've been broken up or on the verge of breaking up. And she says, I'm leaving him. He'll never change. Can God change him, I ask? Oh, yeah, I suppose. But I, I, actually, I, I don't know if he'll ever, he'll never change. I didn't say, will he ever change? Is it possible for God to change this creep to become a loving husband? Those who will submit to the Lord's will have often seen dramatic occurrences in that relationship. God's able to break a person, put their arm behind their back till they cry uncle and submit. He's able to humble anyone. And it's best to turn that person over to the Lord and say, all right, Holy Spirit, go get him. Submit him to you. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? You've got financial problems and you're looking around at people that God's prospering and you're guilty or I mean, you're trying to make them feel guilty. You're kind of angry at them. You look at yourself, what about me? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? It's a question we need to answer tonight. Instead of running around complaining about our lot in life, think about that this week. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Do you have a life that's been ravaged by disobedience and sin? You may have come tonight and you thought, boy, I've really messed my life up. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? No. Week after week, we invite people to make a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we watch them week after week be changed by God's power. And we've seen people, man, who have messed their lives up royally. I mean, it's like they have gone out of their way to mess it up to the nth degree, and they've done a great job of it. But nothing is too difficult for the Lord. This evening, I'm speaking to those of you who are aching hearts. Those of you who need God to intervene. There's nothing too hard for Him. Father, we come before you tonight. And we ask you to change either our circumstance or change us in the midst of it. Enable us by your power to go through it. Help us, Father, to roll our burdens over onto the Lord who has no limitations except our own unbelief. Help us not to limit the Holy One of Israel by our unbelief. Cause us to walk by faith and not stagger at the promises of God. And we pray, Father, that those that you are calling tonight would make personal decisions to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I know that you have drawn some tonight to this assembly. Those that have questions, those who have doubted, those who have dabbled with religious experiences in the past, yet their hearts are unfulfilled. They do not know the forgiveness of sins. Inside, they're frustrated and aching. Lord, I pray that you would draw them near to you, 
that like Abraham, you would have a relationship with them. And Lord, I pray that they would believe in you tonight. Commit themselves to you tonight and it would be counted to them for righteousness. In an attitude of prayer, as you're thinking about your own life, I'd like to invite those of you who need to make a commitment to Jesus Christ. Let's say you've never come to grips with who he is. You've never personally asked him to be your Lord and Savior. You've never personally asked him to forgive you of your sins, 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 to forgive you of your sins.